Gospel of Mark, chapter 11 and verse 27. Chapter 11 and verse 27. And as always, I want to encourage us to remember as we read that this is God's Word. It is God's testimony about His glory, His salvation, our calling to follow Him. It comes to us with absolute authority and transforming power. So I want to invite us to read it with our hearts quieted and anticipating. Let's begin reading Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, King Caspian of Narnia has come to the Narnian domain called the Lone Islands. But the Lone Islands that ought to be following the good laws of Narnia have lived many, many years with the king's absence, and they've degenerated into a slave market approved by the governor of the island, helpfully titled Gumpus. Caspian does have one loyal friend in the island who believes in him, and he asks his friends whether the governor of the Lone Islands still acknowledges the king of Narnia for his lord. His friend answers. In words, yes, all is done in the king's name, but he would not be best pleased to find a real live king of Narnia coming in upon him. In words, yes, all is done in the king's name, but he would not be best pleased to find a real live king of Narnia coming in upon him. <laughs> well, like the governor of the Lone Islands, the religious leadership of Israel carried on their duties as representatives of the Lord. All was done in the Lord's name, so to speak. But then, <laughs> the unexpected happened. One day in the temple, the young rabbi named Jesus enters, casts out the money changers, commands the market be removed from the premises, immediately takes charge of the situation, 
in direct confrontation of their authority, he acted as if he has the right to overrule their leadership of the temple. And indeed, they were not best pleased to find him there. So on a following day, they initiate a confrontation. We are already aware from verse 18, after he had cleared the temple, that they were intent, it says, on destroying him. So their motive has already been made clear by Mark. They are looking to destroy him. And this confrontation is described here for us not just as a bit of religious history. I I keep pressing this point home to us because I think it's so important that we, we feel this truth, especially when we read narratives like the gospel. This is not just a bit of religious history. It's pressed to us because we have to consider this question that they will ask for our own hearts. Their question, ironically, gets at the central purpose for which Mark wrote his book. It gets at the central question that we have to answer in our life. It gets at the central question of every person's life, and it invites us to give our own answer. So, let's read about this confrontation, and and then I'll seek to apply the right answer to our own lives. The passage begins with a question of authority. Jesus has come into the the city of Jerusalem. He goes right to the temple, again, having cleared it out a day previous. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders motivated to destroy and trap him come and say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? Most likely referencing that previous action in the temple, though perhaps including some of his previous teaching and actions in his ministry. But certainly the temple is essentially in view. James Edwards, the commentator, describes the assumption and the insidious trap that is behind their simple question. He says this, No one possesses authority on his own to do what Jesus does. Such authority, presumably, could derive only from God. And yet for Jesus to attribute his authority to God could lead to a charge of blasphemy. Jesus' presumption to speak and act in place of God is again at center stage. The leaders assume probably they have Jesus in a corner. They've crafted this question on purpose. If he answers that he did it without authority, on a whim, so to speak, or based on his own desires for a cleared-out temple, well, then they can challenge his actions as having the height of presumptuous arrogance. But if, as they suspect, he will claim divine authority, well, then they can confront him as a blasphemer. Then the trap will be laid where they can rightfully charge him in their own minds as a mere man acting with the authority of God. Jesus, in his customary absolute control of the scene, you have to appreciate Jesus' absolute calm in every situation. Absolute control of the scene. He answers their question with a question, which is a common practice in the day. What would you say about John the Baptist, he asks them. And if you will answer me, then I will, I will answer your question. What, what would you say about John the Baptist, he wants to know? By what authority? Did he act from heaven with the authority of God himself, or, or was he just a man? 
just any other man baptizing people in the Jordan River? Or, or, or was that a divinely commissioned mission? Now, Jesus' answer is more to the point than it may appear. He's not being evasive. He's actually gently and subtly getting right to the heart of their question. James Edwards again says this, The question about John the Baptist seems at first glance to be either irrelevant or evasive. But ironically, the counter-question contains the seeds of the truth the Sanhedrin hopes to learn. For it was at the baptism by John that the heavens were parted, the Spirit of power descended unto Jesus, and the voice from heaven declared Him God's Son. In other words, a decision about John is a decision about Jesus. A decision about John is a decision about Jesus. If someone claimed that John the Baptist was sent by God, they would, by default, have to acknowledge that Jesus was sent by God as well, since John bore witness to Jesus. On the other hand, if someone claimed that John the Baptist was a mere self-appointed zealot, then they could say the same thing about Jesus. How they viewed John the Baptist would reveal what they thought about Jesus. In effect, Jesus is turning the tables on them and forcing them to first answer their own question. In a milder form, what authority commissioned John the Baptist, would you say? How would you explain his ministry? They discussed their options. <laughs> I don't know how this went exactly, but I sort of imagine a pause, a bit of a blank stare, and a, can you give us just a moment while they hustle <laughs> to the side? <laughs> I don't know if that's what happened, but... <laughs> so they discuss their options. They are cornered. If we say from heaven, it says, he will ask the obvious next question is, why then didn't you believe in him? And then the obvious follow-up, and why don't you believe in the one he bore witness to? But then they say, but if we say from people, well... <laughs> In their mind, that's unthinkable. The people love John. They hold him to be a prophet. He challenged those in authority. He confronted Herod himself. All of a sudden, we're going to be in jeopardy because this great crowd holds John in reverence. We can't do that. What do we do? Now we're cornered. Our own question has been turned upon us. Now, now notice, notice something here. Notice. They're not concerned that they didn't believe in John the Baptist. They're not concerned with the essence of the question. They're just concerned that they're cornered in their own answer. They don't seem to be concerned at all with whether this is true or right. That's already been settled in their minds. It's not even a significant concern. All they are concerned about is how they can maintain control. So here's what is also revealed in their answer. In the first place, I think him introducing John the Baptist introduces in a subtle form what, what they are actually asking. What would you say? In answer to your own question, this thing that's been taking place, beginning with John, continuing with me, would you say it's from God or would you say it's from man? What would you say it is? But it's also the case that what is revealed in their little whispered conference is that all they care about is their position. Their position in this little verbal argument will be exposed if they say that the Baptist represented God. Their position with the people will be exposed if they discount John the Baptist. The underlying fear for both answers is they want to maintain control of the conversation and of their reputation, but Jesus has left them no option. Either option they choose will put them in jeopardy, 
And even the non-answer will expose them as having been defeated by Jesus in this conversation. So there is no option in which they can maintain control, but they choose the third option as causing them the least damage. Better to look dumb than to look like you're a blasphemer or to be ridiculed by the people. We'll just look temporarily dumb. We, we don't know, they say. We, we, we're not sure. We're, we're holding back our judgment on that particular question at this point in time. So Jesus has effectively turned the tables on them. He has won the argument. They are now unable even to answer, and the best they can do is just slink away and say, we're not able to answer that question. And then in words that I think were <laughs> full of more meaning than just his answer to their non-answer, he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Under the surface here, the, the beyond simple debate victory, Mark has an underlying sobering assessment of these religious leaders. Their concern for their own control, their desperate craving to maintain their place and their position, their unwillingness to even consider whether John the Baptist and then therefore Jesus is acting with divine authority, it's all blinded by the fact that all they care about is maintaining their institutional power. There is, there is no questioning of their own heart, no concern about their own unbelief, no concern to question whether possibly we are on the wrong side of God in this conversation. No, all they care about is maintaining their earthly power, and Jesus, in a sobering final word, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This conversation effectively brings the same question into the ears of every reader of Mark's gospel, ironically from the mouths of the leaders, by what authority does Jesus do these things? How would you answer the question Mark might pose to us? What authority does he have to clear God's temple? And who did John the Baptist represent when he bore witness to the greater ministry of Jesus? And which of these two groups has true divine authority? Is it these offended religious leaders claiming to act in God's name who have been embarrassed by this simple rabbi from Nazareth? Or is it this rabbi who has healed the sick, calmed the sea, raised the dead, and now taken command at God's temple? Mark presents very effectively in a brief conversation the question that is at the heart of this book, by what authority? Does Jesus do and say what he does and says? What would you say? How would you answer the question? That's the point of Mark's book. These religious leaders are long dead, gone, out of the picture, but it is still presented to us today, presented to every reader. By what authority do you think he did these things? What do you think? Do you think John the Baptist, who bore witness to Jesus, was commissioned of heaven or was just a man? A good guy, perhaps, an eager guy, a moral guy, a crusader, perhaps. Or, but was he, at the end, just a man, or was he divinely commissioned? What about Jesus? What about his evidence of overwhelming power? What was, was that just myth, legend, or was he something more? It's tempting for religiously inclined people to do things in the Lord's name, so to speak, 
but to not freshly consider and confront the fundamental question. Would we be best pleased to find a real, live king confronting us? Now, this is a uniquely valuable question because these guys are the representatives of the old covenant system that God himself instituted. These aren't just random skeptics. If anyone could lay claim to represent God's authority, it would be these Jewish priests and leaders. They represented the one divinely instituted religion on earth. There has only been to this point one One place to know of God's revelation. One place to encounter God's presence. And it is right here. And these guys represent it. Their ancestors had received God's actual revelation and redemption. They had received God's actual words through the law of Moses and the prophets. These are not just curious debaters. They are the scribes and Pharisees and elders of Jerusalem. So in a larger sense here, Mark is positioning these two entities as a changing of the guard or better, an exposure of the hypocrisy and failure of those who ought to have been representing God and yet who failed to hand over their role to the ultimate representative of God. He'll make this point again poignantly and powerfully in the parable that he immediately begins to tell about a vineyard and tenants who do not recognize the ambassadors of the owner, even his own son. So we know this is the point Mark is, is leading us towards. Look, look, this isn't just any skeptic. These are the representatives of the covenant of Yahweh, and they have a job to do at this particular time to recognize that Yahweh has come to His people at last and to hand over, so to speak, the keys of the kingdom to Him. Here's the point for us. If even the Jewish leaders of the old covenant system needed to believe in Jesus as God's son, then certainly 21st century Gentiles ought to recognize his authority. And certainly any other religious notion ought to bow before his supremacy. Edwards again says this, institutional religion, even in its pinnacle in the powerful and prestigious Sanhedrin, is vacuous unless it is centered in the strong one declared to be God's son at the baptism of John. John's significance for Jesus, and in this instance for the Sanhedrin, is as a herald of Jesus' divine sonship, which Mark begins and ends his gospel with. These things of which the Sanhedrin inquires can be understood only if they are seen as consequences, listen to this, consequences of the authority of Jesus as the Son of God, which John's baptism inaugurated. What Jesus does as God's servant has meaning only because of who He is as God's Son. Only because of who He is as Son. God the Son, who had lived forever as God the Son, became incarnate and was announced and proclaimed as God the Son at His baptism. And there is the crucial question. 
This God that they have been serving in His name has come to them in the person of His Son. Will they acknowledge His authority? Will they be best pleased to see a real live king in front of them? Here is Mark's powerful but subtle point. Those who reject the authority of Christ reject the authority of God Himself, whatever their former role or pretense of religious authority. Those who submit to the authority of Christ submit to the authority of God Himself. The central question for every person and every religion is this, will you submit all that you are to the authority of Jesus Christ, God's own Son? Mark admits no middle option. Either he is a fraud or he is the Lord. There is no middle option of mild respect that stops short of absolute submission. That's why Jesus responds to them with the same question back to them. You have to make a decision. Either this is all from God, in which case you must submit, or it is a fraud. You must choose. Mark is not interested in a middling option that seeks to quibble with the absolutes of who Jesus is. He does not allow any ambivalence about Jesus Christ. Either he is God's son, or he is to be rejected as a fraud. And the leaders have already made their decision, and their decision will escalate right up to the point where they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will crucify him. They will crucify him as a fraud, and ironically, what they will say about him on that cross ironically reveals the truth. What they consider to be a lie and a sham is actually a proclamation of the greatest glory. They will say of him, he saved others, he cannot save himself. If you are the Son of God, they will say, come down from the cross, when in reality, Jesus will reveal his divine sonship by saying to his Father, not what I will, but what you will be done. They view him as someone they can easily scorn without consequence, a blasphemer who must not lay claim to any authority but Jesus invites them, and he invites every reader to answer their own question. He, he brings the readers of his gospel to this point. Skillfully, with inspiration from God himself, Mark just brings them to this point again and again and again. And there he will be on the cross. And, and it's as if Mark is saying, you, you must choose. No Mild morality for Mark. You, you must choose who he is, who you believe him to be. You must act it out. You must live it out. Fraud or Lord, are you pleased or are you not pleased to encounter him? You must choose. You must choose. And you must choose again and again and again until he returns again to his temple. You must choose again and again to answer the question, who, who is this person? By what authority does he say and do these things? Is he God the Son or is he not? Those who reject the authority of Christ reject the authority of God himself. There is no 
claiming of God's favor apart from submission to Jesus Christ as God's son. There is no claiming of God's favor apart from submission to Jesus Christ as God's son. That's true for nominal Christians who go through the motions but have not submitted their lives to his authority. It's true for every other religion on earth. Those who presume to earn favor from a deity out there are living an inaccurate and condemnable lie because there is no favor from God apart from submission to God's Son. As Psalm 2 would say to the kings of the earth, kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in your way. But blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There is no favor from God apart from submission to God's own Son revealed in His incarnate form here as the person Jesus Christ. So a Christian says gladly in answer to this question, by what authority do you do these things? He does it because He's the Son of God. He does it because He speaks and He acts with God's own authority. He does it because He is the fulfillment of God's purposes on earth. He does it because God revealed Him to be His Son in His miracles, and He will do so again in His death and resurrection. All of God's historic purposes were leading up to His arrival and find their fulfillment in His glory. All human beings and all religious notions will bow at His feet, including those of His very own people. Brothers and sisters, we ought to find these answers resonating in our heart this morning. There ought to be a, an echo chamber in our heart of, yes, yes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully worthy of allegiance and submission, and I am very pleased at the prospect of meeting with Him. That ought to be the, the resounding joy of our hearts. Yes, yes, the real live King, come into His temple, yes. Here are the keys to the temple, and here are the keys to my heart. Here is your rightful place and authority, and I gladly acknowledge that you do all these things because you are indeed the Son of God. Now, I trust you are saying amen, that your heart is affirming, yes, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. That's what I believe about Jesus. That's not a myth, that's not a religious notion, that's not a pleasant Christian idea, that's not an, an anthology of religious background that I've kind of picked and choose and decided, yeah, I think Jesus is, yeah, he's the son of God, and, you know, we look up to him kind of like one of those superheroes, we, we know the legend. No, 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 actually, he actually is the son of God, and I actually believe that he has all authority and every right to be the center of God's purposes on earth, and, and any kind of religious idea that I have ought to be submitted to him, and he is God's final revelation of his glory, and all of God's purposes find their center point and culmination in Him and all religious people will have to bow their knee before Him sooner or later and every human on earth rightly comes to Him and offers Him their allegiance. That's, that's what a Christian believes about Jesus. And I, I pray that truth rings with affirmation in your heart. But I also believe 
that the authority of Christ requires a, a battle of faith. I think it requires a, a battle of faith because too often we slip into doing things in the king's name, but without a living, active, confident faith in the king's authority. We can sometimes, can't we, do things in the king's name, and I think this is particularly dangerous for those who've been Christians for a long stretch of time, that they lose some of that eager, zealous allegiance that maybe was there when they were first converted, and, and King Jesus captivated their hearts and their affections and their submission, and later on, we begin to do things in the king's name, and if we were honest with ourselves, in certain moments, in certain seasons, we would not be well-pleased to see a real live king coming in to certain moments. So it requires a battle of faith in the authority of Christ. This question has to be re-asked and re-engaged and reaffirmed until that day when we do see him face to face, which every human being sitting here will. Every human being will stand before this king. He will return to his temple, and every human being will be forced to acknowledge that he actually is the Son of God, and that our every moment and thought and emotion and action will be evaluated by His holiness, and we will have to answer whether our life was lived in obedience to Him or not. And so, for believers, there has to be a fight to not just do things in the King's name, but as if there is a real live King coming for His people. I think it's a fight. It's a fight to hold that truth in front of us. Three battles that I want to reference about this fight re regarding the Lord's authority, the authority of Christ, by what authority they wanted to know. And we want to answer that question by the authority of being the Son of God. Three battles. First, the authority of Christ requires a battle against unbelief against unbelief in Him. This is the simple, most foundational one. Uh, look, Christians experience the temptation and thoughts of not believing what they confess they believe. That is a normal experience of the Christian life. We all struggle in many ways, and one of the ways we struggle is thoughts of doubt and skepticism and uncertainty about the authority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Thoughts of doubt, wondering, is he actually who he claimed to be, who I confessed him to be at my conversion? Look, the battle with doubt doesn't end at your baptism, it ends at your death. When you are baptized, you confess what you believe by faith to be true, and then your sinful nature and the devil and the world conspire to undermine that confession at every step such that it is normal for Christians to have thoughts of doubt, questions, uncertainty. And that's one of the main reasons we come to church every Sunday, so that our faith can be refueled. We can be re-envisioned at the authority of Christ. It's one of the reasons we want to study the Scriptures together in our homes. We want to present them to our children because they are certainly being bombarded with all the reasons not to believe in Jesus, and we want to give them the reasons to believe in Jesus as a regular pattern for our family and home life. 
And just, just a quick aside to parents. Parents, I, I, I have been burdened for some years now where Christian parents can have this kind of subtle worldly idea that to create a, an explicitly Christian home where Jesus is talked about and we, we assume the authority of God and the authority of the Scriptures is somehow coercive, and if a, a child is not a believer, well, how, how are they supposed to respond to these kinds of things? Listen, this is not an opinion. It's real. It's true. When you are in your home and you have a fire in the fireplace, you do not share its heat as an opinion with your child. It actually is a fireplace. You don't introduce eating as an option to be subjectively considered. You present these things as true. And obviously, we can't change the heart or coerce the heart or force someone to know Jesus. We can present them not as an opinion that might be chosen if they desire to at some point, but as fact that if they reject, they will have to eventually to confront one day or another. But don't buy into this nonsense about pluralism as if we're just supposed to offer a, a child the, the panorama of ideas. Let them explore and, and consider what, what is true to them. What is true to them is going to destroy them if it's false. The authority of Christ requires a battle against unbelief. In parents, it requires a battle against the unbelief that I just have an opinion and it works for me, but it might not for everybody else. No! This is not an opinion. This is not one way to think about the future. This is the future. He is the king. And that requires fighting and battling the thoughts of unbelief. John Piper said that this way was I, I love, let us make war, not with other people, but with our own unbelief. So there is a place for verbalizing your doubt. There, there is a place for that. There is a place for sharing with your spouse or with a pastor, or with a close friend. I, I had this thought of doubt. I know it's not true, but here's what I was thinking. But sometimes I think we give free reign to verbalize our doubts and never verbalize our confessions. Well, we want to be transparent. Yes, but you are a Christian, and by the Spirit of God, you have been given faith to believe that Christ is the Son of God, that He died for your sins, that He rose again, that He is coming in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that ought to come out of your mouth as much as I've been struggling with doubt this week. Look, turn your mouth into a tool in the battle of faith in the authority of Christ. Don't only verbalize doubts and internalize confessions of faith. Externalize confessions of faith. I mean like say them to yourself. Christ is Lord. I don't mean like think that's a good idea. I mean say that this week. When you are driving home and you're discouraged, and you're worried about the finances, say out loud, Christ is Lord. When you are believing that my subjective sense of what's right seems to include categories that the Bible says is wrong, you need to say to your heart, Christ is Lord. 
The authority of Christ requires a battle against unbelief. Brothers and sisters, we are in a warfare until we die. And the greatest enemy we have is our own unbelief and sin. It is an enemy always looking to gain an advantage, an enemy always looking to flank us, looking for us when we are weak, looking for us at our vulnerable moments, and we must know that enemy and fight against him. Mental discipline, I find, is one of the most neglected disciplines of the Christian church. By what authority does he do these things? The authority of being the Son of God. The authority I confess, the authority I acknowledge as being over my life, over my decisions, over my beliefs, over my doctrine, over my marriage, my family, my parenting. We must battle against unbelief. Secondly, the authority of Christ requires a battle against open-mindedness about Christ. Open-mindedness about Christ. Now, I'm using that word very intentionally. Open-mindedness can be a good thing when you're talking about things that the Bible doesn't make clear. So, like when they discovered germs. And there was a lot of doctors that said, that's absurd. Little bugs you can't see making people sick. It's ridiculous. I'm going to keep using my same scalpel through four surgeries, and I don't care what you think. You're crazy. That was closed-mindedness, very unhelpful. Open-mindedness is good when it's talking about things the Bible doesn't speak to directly. It is bad when it's talking about things the Bible speaks to clearly and especially about Christ. Open-mindedness is sin for which human beings will be condemned when it comes to Jesus. Now, I think they gave this answer because they were scared of the people, but I think many people give this answer because they're also scared of the people. I don't know. I'm leaving my options open. I'm exploring. It's cool and hip and popular to be an explorer. It's considered arrogant and self-righteous to be a decider. But faith decides. Faith says he is the Son of God. There is no way to God apart from him. There is no religion that gets to God apart from him. There is no access to God apart from him. There is no favor before God except in him. It decides. It decides, and then it keeps deciding. With greater confidence, the more clarity the Bible has on something, and with less confidence, the less the Bible speaks to something. But the more clear the Scripture is, and there is nothing it is more clear about than in the identity of Jesus Christ. So this open-mindedness about Christ or open-mindedness about His Word is a sin for which people will be condemned. Brothers and sisters, I am closed-minded about Christ. I'm not interested in some other opinion about him. And you shouldn't be either. I'm closed-minded about Christ. We should be closed-minded about He is the king. Now, do we have thoughts of doubt that seek to breach those walls? Of course we do. It's a battle of unbelief until we die. But, but I'm closed-minded. The gates are shut. The portcullis is down. The arrows are ready. I, I am closed-minded. No, you're, you're not, you don't get to come in here. 
And if you do, I'm kicking you back out again by the power of his word, by the common grace that takes place in the everyday provisions of his glory, and especially in the special revelation that we receive week by week, Sunday by Sunday. I am, I am kicking those thoughts out of here, those open-minded thoughts that are cool in a pluralistic era that is sending people chuckling to hell. Finally, the authority of Christ requires a battle against autonomy. <laughs> These guys, <laughs> they wanted autonomy. They wanted to do whatever they wanted to do in the temple. <laughs> That's what they wanted. Life was good. They were right in the middle between the Romans and the people, and they had prestige and almost unlimited religious power and a significant amount of political power and influence, and they liked it. If they wanted to sell pigeons in the court of the Gentiles, they could. Who cares what anybody else thinks? And honestly, I want the same thing. I, I could think about these guys or Governor Gumpus and laugh at him, but really, I want the same thing. You know what some of the greatest areas of conviction I've experienced in my life is when I realize I, I think I'm in charge. That reaction when things didn't go my way, you know what that was? That's me thinking I'm in charge. That moment when I got to the end of my day and I said, man, that was a hard day of work. I just want to focus on whatever I want to do right now. What am I saying? I think I'm in charge. I say this to my youngest son all the time because he's got to learn it. I know he's got to learn it because it's evident he doesn't learn it. But I need to learn it. Sometimes he probably should say it to me. Don't tell him that, but I mean, he, you know. <laughs> Son, you're not in charge. Well, this passage is saying that to these leaders and to you and me. You are not in charge. You are not in charge. This actually isn't your life. These actually aren't just your decisions. It isn't actually your future. Listen to this. You're not even in charge of your own identity. He is. I'm not in charge. Now that would be horrible news, except for who's talking. It's true whether it was horrible news or not. Listen, the slave in the dungeon is a slave in the dungeon. Whether he wants to be or not, he is in the possession of a tyrant. You are in the possession of a God. Good news. He's really good. And he's in Jerusalem because he's going there to die. The one who is in charge is going to die. The one who's confronting the religious leaders 
is confronting them knowing that will lead to his arrest and execution. He's already told his disciples that's what's going to happen. He's there intentionally to die. He is provoking them intentionally so that it will escalate at the end of this week in his crucifixion. He is confronting them knowing that he's right, but knowing they will reject him and that in the wisdom of God, that rejection will actually reveal his sonship when he takes on this mission to save people who have rejected the authority of God and are headed towards hell, and he will die in their place, suffer for their sins, rise to glory, and then call his people to believe in him. And that's the one who's in charge. And his commands are not burdensome. He is not a tyrant the way sin is. He is not a deceiver the way Satan is. He is not a flippant, self-serving, egotistical maniac the way the world is. He is the self-sacrificing king, and he is in charge. Now, the faith in Christ's authority requires a battle against unbelief, against open-mindedness about Christ. Be done with that. And against autonomy. It gladly says to the Lord Jesus, I I will answer that question. You are the Son of God. And shockingly, your mission is to die in place of sinners, which you are here in Jerusalem to do. And you're provoking the leaders to make sure that it happens in your own time and under your own control. And you will rise from the dead and you will return to judge the living and the dead. And when that happens, this particular ransom sinner who is also a slave to this king will be best pleased to see the real, live, living king come before us. Mark wants us to answer the question every day, in every moment, throughout the battle. I believe you are the Son of God, the Savior, the risen King. I believe. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to pray specifically for those who have an ongoing chronic battle against unbelief. Lord, they have fought, and yet thoughts of doubt continue to plague them. It is a particular temptation for some. I pray, Lord, that you would deliver them from the intensity of that battle. Lord, that if there are voices that are amplifying, Lord, in the world or of the enemy. I pray you would silence those voices that amplify those doubts. Lord, if there are patterns of life that are making them more vulnerable to those voices, I pray you would make those clear that they can walk in a different direction. Lord, I pray you would amplify the voice of your word, that you would increase the power of your word in their lives, in their hearts, that, Lord, your glory would banish the clouds of unbelief.
Lord, I pray that you would rescue and save every young person here from the lie of open-mindedness about you. Lord, that is a lie. Lord, speak your truth and set them free. Lord, there are many who are tempted to be afraid of the people instead of allegiant to you. Lord, rescue the young especially. Lord, I pray rescue us all from our craving for autonomy, our craving for control. We have less right to it than those Jewish leaders did yet, and let, Lord, we look at our lives and hold it as our own domain. Lord, we, we want to gladly hand over to you the Lord come into his temple. So come into this temple, Lord. Come into the temple that is the heart of your people, Lord, and cleanse us and show yourself to be our authority. We trust you and we believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.